0: You're listening to 2 for Tea. i I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello everyone. My guest today is Ralph Leonard. Ralph is a British Nigerian writer on international politics, religion, culture, and humanism. So Ralph, you and I first entered into conversation on Twitter when we were talking about universalism of culture and how the the so-called Western literary and intellectual tradition is actually really the birthright of mankind, and we shouldn't be talking about a Western versus non-Western intellectual tradition. And I think this a good place to start might be to think about, to discuss how you think about the idea, the, the very common idea nowadays that we need to decolonize the curriculum and what that means to you. And I'm going to just begin by reading a passage from France Fanon from his book, Black Skin, White Masks, which you draw attention to in one of your articles on this subject. France writes, I am a man, and what I have to recapture is the whole past of the world. I am not responsible only for the slavery involved in Santo Domingo. But every time man has contributed to the victory of the dignity of the spirit, every time a man has said no to an attempt to subjugate his fellows, I have felt solidarity with his act. In no way does my basic vocation have to be drawn from the past of peoples of color. In no way do I have to dedicate myself to reviving some black civilization unjustly ignored. I will not make myself the man of any past. My black skin is not a repository for specific values. Haven't I got better things to do on this earth than avenge the blacks of the 17th century? It would be of enormous interest to discover black literature or architecture from the 3rd century BC. We would be overjoyed to learn of the existence of a correspondence between some black philosopher and Plato. But we can absolutely not see how this fact would change the lives of eight-year-olds working the cane fields of Martinique or Guadalupe. I find myself in this world, and I recognize I have one right alone of demanding human behavior from the other. So, Ralph, what do you think of this kind of intellectual tradition in regards to recent calls to decolonize the curriculum? What's Mm. your response to that?
1: Well, first of all, let me just say on the Franz Fanon passage there, that's a beautiful passage, and it never fails to like uh, move me because, uh, you know, it was that passage. It's part of a much longer um, passage in the conclusion to Black Skin, White Masks, where he, where Fanon, I think, writes the best statement you'll ever find for anti-racism and humanism, and it's it was that that initially probably made me into a leftist radical in the first place. So I want to say that first. Secondly, on uh, the, the colonial question, um, for, let me, I think I, we should begin. I think I would begin by conceding, st- Something where I think there is a point to be had. Um, I think there is certainly um, a history of, um, I suppose, exclusion, um, of devaluing um, the contributions of the non-Western sphere, That, if you pardon the expression, in the realm of human culture that whatever the West has created, that, that's just, that's it. That's just the best and the um, non-Western world has never done that. So I do think there is a point to be had there that there have, there are texts, uh, historical texts, like for example, um, a thousand Arabian nights that comes from the Arab world, the medieval Arab world. That is, I think, people should read, and there are other writers um, that should be read as well. But where I think this goes wrong is the idea that in order to right those wrongs, it means you have to somehow devalue uh, the so-called Western canon itself that Uh, that, you know, Shakespeare or Goethe or Dickens or Thackeray don't have any other, are just simply sort of expressions of a white male heterosexual world view, which I think is a very truncated view to have about literature and human culture as well. And also... It leads to this to this anxiety that you can't make distinctions, that uh, you can't uh, categorize between works that are great and works that are not so great, and and be, and you know this they um, the argument goes that because because um, the um, the fact that. What we call the canon, most of the authors are Western. Therefore, it's an expression of racism. But I think what this fails to take into account for that the reason why most of the so-called canon is Western and by white men is is because that it is in the West, in Europe, and then later in North America, that a um, social form what we call modern capitalism, developed initially in, the, in Europe and America, and uh, that which made uh, those societies more materially advanced than, say, other societies, and that's which improved literacy, education, and so on. And that's why, and of, of course, productive technique, and that's why there is this so-called discrepancy there
0: so it's it, it's a historically um it's a matter of historical contingency that this body of work was largely written in the west but yes. nevertheless it is work that draws upon more universally human ideas and therefore potentially speaks to everyone
1: yes and can i just say that what also makes like the works of Shakespeare or Garth,er like ingenious and um, immaculate, and what made them literary titans was is precisely because of that historical contingency, because they existed in a world that was undergoing a very epochal historical transformation, where the modern world what we call the modern world started to emerge and the you know if i may speak in marxist lingo for a moment moment where you know bourgeois society started to be created and all those ideals of personal emancipation and the individual man as the center of the universe not god or nature uh started to arrive. So that's why we have these characters such as, you know, Hamlet or Falstaff or Macbeth or Faust or, um, Swelter in, um, Gotha's infamous novel. That's why they emerged out of this period because they started to give a voice to very very modern sensibilities that still speak with us today in terms of like you know individual freedom autonomy um you know a certain kind of alienation a sense of uh anomie um a, uh, a feeling of you know anxiety in our place in our world like you see in hamlet that's and that's why they're very significant.
0: Mm. Yeah. I, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the book Lost Enlightenment, um, or Lost I've Enlightenment. It I'm just, uh, it's by, a uh, Frederick Starr. The subtitle is Lost Enlightenment Central Asia's Golden Age from the Arab Conquest to Tamerlane. And that book really charts the way in which, um, there was a potential. There was a beginning, a burgeoning of independent thought and of science, of poetry um, within the within it, um, the the countries along the Silk Road. I think he situates the epicenter first in Baghdad, later in Stesiphon. I may not be pronouncing that correctly. In the great Persian cities, and. Then later in Bukhara, which is modern-day Afghanistan, and he charts very closely how that basically was was um, completely squashed by the resurgence of Islamic theocracy. So it was a kind of de facto secular, secularism, and commerce, and the intermingling of of different peoples within these kind of entrepôts along the Silk Road that. Allowed that kind of literary culture to flourish. And as soon as the conditions were in place, it flourished. And the reason that it ceased flourishing was because the theocrats took over and, um, and, and outlawed anything that, that questioned the orthodoxy of Islam. So I can, I can see a link between that and, and the flourishing of literature and culture in the West. Just at the time when theocracy was also weakening, especially in the in the Enlightenment, when uh, people were losing their faith in established authority, and much more emphasis was placed on thinking for yourself and expressing yourself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I remember that you pointed out some um, a, a couple of African uh, humanists. That was a an article I think in Unheard, not one that you wrote, but one that you were sharing and popularizing. Do you remember that?
1: It's um the Ethiopian. Yes. Yes. Who yes. was I was, I think he existed certainly prior to Kant and was probably a little bit earlier than Locke. So he existed in the seventeenth century. Yeah, and he um I forgotten his name, but he basically argued something pretty close to atheism um, against slavery and something close to gender equality. It wasn't perfect, but it was better than most people back then in terms of their views on women. So, yeah, you know, these values, these um, ideals are are not the The sole property of Europe and North America. They are sentiments you'll find in across, you know, mankind in all cultures throughout history. So that, that's, that's the point. What, what the argument is, is not a defense of so called Western civilization as in some kind of Uh, creepy culturalist way, but a defense of uh, humanist values and values that can aid in the progress towards human freedom. Yeah. And and just can I add, have you heard of the book, um, The Ornament of the World? No. Uh, it's, it's a book by um, Maria Rosa Menosal and it's on um, Alandolos in Spain. and she makes a very similar argument about how um, you know the muslim arab empire in that region um, was uh, you know created the context for you know mutual tolerance between muslims jews and christians a, a cosmopolitan civilization which also advanced in you know science mathematics optics and um art as well, and poetry, wine poetry specifically.
0: Talking about um this kind of burgeoning of enlightenment sentiments, questioning of authority, etc., you have there's been a lot of criticism from um the the kind of identitarian wing of the liberal left, which mm-hmm. I know is not your tribe at all. Um yeah but of the of the American Revolution. And there was the 1619 Project, which was a proposal that we should see American history um, as rooted in racism and as beginning with the arrival of the first slave ships. Mm-hmm. I think they've since backtracked on that original claim. But you have recently written that we should reaffirm the values of the American revolution. Could you say more about that?
1: Mm. Um, I wrote that as my argument in that is basically that the revolution that took part, that took place in 1776 in the 13 states was historically a progressive moment because first of all, established a secular state. It overthrew clerics from government. It also, uh, did away with, um, senior, you know, senioralism and aristocracy of, or, you know, in Jefferson's words, he called it aristocracy of birth and rank birth and blood. Um, and uh, it sort of established the architecture of, you know, liberal, democratic state, overthrowing the old feudal absolutism. And it would it later inspire the French Revolution, both ideologically and materially, first ideologically through Thomas Paine, with, who would write The Rights of Man. And uh, materially, because the French Empire supported um, the American revolutionaries to uh, beat the British, and in that process bankrupt bankrupted themselves, which helped contribute to the outbreak of the French Revolution, and the American Revolution, for me, is the start of the age of revolution, as it's sometimes called, that started from the 18th century right up until 1848. And uh, in that sense, the American Revolution is historically important and shouldn't be underestimated or degraded because of tendentious ideology.
0: I think that it's... I mean, when I'm reading back to some of the rhetoric from the American Revolution, it is the the hypocrisy on the part of some of the revolutionaries is very striking. They use a lot of imagery of their allegorical servitude to Great Britain and of wanting to throw off the shackles and the chains, etc. And as Samuel Johnson um, pointed out at the time, some of the loudest yelps for liberty come from the drivers of Negroes. Those are Johnson's words. Yeah. But I I guess what I took from your article um, about it is that despite the fact that some people were egregiously failing to live up to their own ideals, nevertheless, it's very important that those ideals were conceived and voiced. And they provided a kind of groundwork which allowed others to demand their freedom later, or made it made it easier.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so on the slavery question, after seventy seventy six slavery could not be looked at in the same way again, as it had been previously, because in the past, You know, for as you would know, like for most of history, slavery was just seen as normal, as fundamentally uh, vital to the economic order and as a social basis. However, after the eighteenth century, during the Enlightenment and after the American Revolution, you couldn't it could no longer be seen in that way because of the you know, expressions of the ideals of liberty, of freedom, and of, and this is one of the fundamental premises of the Enlightenment of questioning social institutions that social institutions are not natural or divinely ordained, but are man made. Thus, they can be unmade by man. So then, slavery, and remember, during the American Revolution, there was a big debate. On this, on ab- abolishing slavery, there were people at the time who did want to abolish slavery from the start, like um, Thomas Paine and even Thomas Jefferson, who uh, in the who wrote a you know clause that was deleted in from the Declaration of Independence, condemning the British Empire for importing black slaves from Africa. Who had done nothing wrong to the Europeans into the Americas and treating them um, very badly. Obviously, in you know, in later on, you'll find that Jefferson was had was a racist, to put it bluntly, and was against the Haitian Revolution for that very reason.
0: I, I, yes, Alexander von H- Humboldt was another one of the. Uh, another contemporary who was firmly and consistently against slavery, mm-hmm. and he had a he uh, wrote a series of letters to Jefferson uh, on this topic, but yeah, so and those values that were laid out in the American Revolution also of course formed the basis of modern day feminism which really s- began with mary Wollstonecraft's book a, Vin- a vindication of the rights of woman which was directly modeled on paine's vindications of the rights of vindication of the rights of man and yeah. was modeled on the ideas of the french and american revolutions and in that appeal for um, that idea that everyone is born, as Gandhi was later to put it, every man is born equal and free. And that once you have that as a declared principle, then it is easier to question the ways in which you're not living up to that principle.
1: Yeah. Yes. And it um, provides a reservoir of um, Sentiment and idealism for other oppressed groups to fight for their freedom. I mean, a good example of this would be the abolition movement and Frederick Douglass, who wrote um, a speech on dedicated to the Fourth of July um, holiday, where he points out this very ambiguous contradiction between. What America says and what it actually does in practice, but also what's more important is its historical. In the historical moment, it was it was setting that it is because of the American Revolution and the French Revolution that we have all of these uh, freedoms that we have now. So things like the abolition of slavery, modern feminism, even um, the campaign for racial equality and sexual liberation are all advancements of the bourgeois revolution rather than its negation.
0: Right. Because fundamentally at the heart of that is the idea of Equality at birth or equality of moral worth at birth, which is inconsistent, which is inconsistent with an aristocratic system and with a monarchy that are to whom divine rights are ascribed. And all of those kinds of things, which suggest a sort of natural hierarchy from birth. Yeah. Those things are anatomy to these, to these egalitarian sentiments. And until you get rid of those ideas, it's it's hard to have a justification for women's equality or for the abolition of slavery, etc.
1: And what um other trends that um facilitated this was because of the a uh, developing global market and and the growth of cities and more intense forms of urbanization. I think it was max Weber, who once put it that it was in the western city or as he put it that um in the men and women could meet each other and interact and do business with each other as individuals as opposed to being avatars for you know family blood or kin or um feudal entourage that like it was in this sort of context that what we call, you know, individuals, autonomous individuals meeting with, with each other came to be.
0: So talking of revolutions, you've also written about the importance of the Haitian Revolution. Mm-hmm. And why do you think um, that it's important that people study the Haitian Revolution and know more about that specific history?
1: uh because it is one of the greatest moments to happen in human history period um because it's the first ever slave revolt where the slaves overthrew their masters and established their own government and um it was the only the only revolution during that 18th century period during that revolutionary period that carried out the aims and ideals of the radical enlightenment to its logical end so they came closest to actually actualizing and weaponizing if you like the the slogan liberty equality fraternity against their french slave masters. And they and of, it abolished slavery from Haiti. And, uh, and later on, it would serve as an inspiration for anti-colonial and anti-imperialist movements in the 20th century to combat European colonialism. So that in a nutshell is why the Haitian Revolution is important.
0: And the the most important book on the Haitian Revolution, or the classic account of the revolution, is of course C. L. R. James's book *Black Jacobins*. And you actually use yeah. C. L. R. James's picture as your avatar on Twitter. Yes. And um, why is C. L. R. James so important to you? And what could the Western left learn from him?
1: I suppose he's he's important to me because. He comes out of a specific uh, Marxist tradition, um, which is Trotskyism. And he, in in, you know, Christopher Hitchens once put this about George Orwell, that he was one of the few people to stand against the three great evils of the 20th century, um, fascism, imperialism, and then Stalinism. And the same thing can be said of C.L.R. James, who was against Stalinism very, very early, you know, right in, back in the 1930s, long before, you know, most of the Western left believed what was being said about Stalin's uh, purges and his um, mass ex- executions. Um, also, he's, he's a He's, he was what you would call a, a proper intellectual in the sense that he was, he knew so much about literature. Like he knew the Western canon at the, like the back of his hand. Um, but he was not an elitist either. He was also very, very interested in popular culture. And if you know, there's, he actually wrote a book, he didn't quite finish. He only managed to complete it to a draft level called American Civilization, which is a kind of study of the United States. And he writes a lot of good things about American popular culture, the sort of thing you would not find in, say, someone like Orono or um, um, or other another left-wing Frankfurt school thinkers who didn't have a really positive view about American culture and society. And what I think most people can learn from C.L.R. was that he held of the highest importance the importance of human agency within the historical process. So human beings have the ability to transform their world and society, uh, which is why his... Black Jacobins book is so important because it it is it tells the story of how slaves and led by Toussaint Louverture changed history and uh transformed the society that they lived in.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I always think when I'm um thinking about the Haitian Revolution is that It provides a. It also, as a historical narrative, gives the lie to the idea, to this benevolent, paternalistic idea that white Westerners graciously um, granted slaves their freedom. Yeah. And the slaves themselves were just these kind of passive objects. A lot of abolitionists in the 18th and 19th centuries are quite sort of unintentionally racist in their depictions of of slaves. and um, This is the they,
1: Uncle Tom's Cabin view.
0: Yes, yes. They describe them almost as these childlike, innocent people. And some of that may be an attempt to just arouse greater pathos, in, uh, um, express greater pathos, arouse more, pity in their audiences uh, in order to get support for their for their cause so i think not all of it has a has that kind of racist paternalist tinge some of it is rhetoric is a rhetorical mm-hmm. strategy but at the same time it's i think it leads to a lot of falsification certainly of british history that i frequently hear people arguing that the the Brits were one of the largest um, slave. Were I think during the heyday, they were the um, the the greatest exponents of the slave trade. But also that the British quote unquote abolished the slave trade, as <laughs> if to say people should be grateful that they abolished the thing that they had been um, most active within to begin with. And of course, it wasn't always this. It wasn't the same people necessarily, who were slave traders and who were abolitionists. So that that kind of narrative, it's it almost feels like we granted these people their freedom. We graciously manumitted them, um, and that seems to me like such a bothlorization of history.
1: So I was just going to say what's often forgotten about that is those acts of parliament that first abolished this slave trade within the british empire and one that just abolished slavery full stop were precipitated by very very large slave revolts in the caribbean so the um, i think it was the act in 18 18- Eighteen, I think it was, that abolished the slave trade within the British Empire. Three years before that, there was a massive slave rebellion in Jamaica, of between thousands and thousands of slaves, and uh, you know, plantations were burnt, and uh, you know, slave traders were killed. So you know, it's simple arithmetic. If you that one was followed by the other. So it wasn't just as if the, the you know, the British Empire sort of egged on by William Wilberforce sort of just had this moment of enlightenment that, oh, you know, slavery is, is bad. You know, we should uh, do something about it. It was, you know, there was a, a, a complex process of first, you know, slave revolts. Secondly, how slavery was just becoming redundant economically because of more industrial forms of um, economic uh, production and you know, free labor and so forth.
0: And I think we also shouldn't discount the role of uh, freed American slaves who came to the UK. In the Victorian period, they were enormously popular as touring speakers, describing the horrors mm-hmm. of slavery in many abolitionist societies, use those narratives to to garner support for their cause
1: yeah and do you know that um during the american civil war that um karl marx helped to organize um lancashire workers to blockade ships sending aid to the confederacy
0: Yes, I have heard that. So I want to just change tack a little bit. Um, You describe yourself as a um, libertarian Marxist. What do you mean by that? I think this was the most asked question when I uh, elicited questions from Twitter for this interview was what it means to be a libertarian Marxist.
1: I suppose contrary to what some people will imagine, Marxism, as I see it, is fundamentally about the realization of human freedom. Um, it is, it is, and in this sense, it's very much influenced by Hegel, who um, uh, talked about modernity as at least allowing the potential for universal freedom like you know hegel once put said this quote that for um the um ancients only one person was free in antiquity only a few people were free in modern times all people can be free and i see marxism as the way to realize that potential that Capitalism builds the foundation for a higher level of civilization, of freedom, abundance, plentitude, and human uh, activity. But it is the contradictions of capitalism within and its social relations that are a fetter to this. Realization coming into place. So it is, you know, as the theory goes, that it is only by the proletariat taking the horn of history that we can transcend um, capitalism and go into a newer and hopefully more exciting social formation. Can allow this process of human freedom to take place. As for the, the libertarian bit, that's first. That's just what an emphasis against um, you know Stalinist views that sort of see human beings as property of the state. But also, it is um, an assertion that individuals can be free, autonomous, and expressive. That I, There is no, this sort of contradiction made, this actually, sorry, a false dichotomy made between the individual and society is a false one. That it is within society that an individual can be free and autonomous. And that that's, in a nutshell, that's what what makes me, Marxist. And just to add, it is once we've once um, capitalism is transcended that the state itself will wither away and society can act autonomously. And that that's my view.
0: I want to return to um, questions of race and identity a little bit, partly because this is what I'm currently working on and writing about. And um, I'm going to read a little excerpt from an article that you wrote uh, in Against Cultural Appropriation, which you describe as a kind of ethnic sumptuary, set of ethnic sumptuary laws. And um, this is what you write, which I could really uh, relate to personally. It is not a coincidence that many agitators against cultural appropriation are socially conscious people of colour, second- and third-generation immigrants, whose ties to their heritage are precarious. You may feel like a foreigner in your home country, yet might as well be a tourist in the country of your parents. The best you can do is take the bits of your heritage that you value and assimilate it in yourself to have any connection with it all. Even then, it feels distant and instrumental. I am empathetic to this myself as a British Nigerian, the sense of alienation and deracination many of my cohorts will feel. But I see this deracination, this proletarian rootlessness, however paradoxical it may seem, as the basis for a new, higher form of liberation. One of the hard truths of modern existence is that there is no such thing as a rooted, stable, and authentic identity one can reconnect with after seismic processes such as colonialism, migration, and globalization? Um, could you say more about that? About how you feel, what you, how you feel about um, identity politics in general, and this kind of cultural identitarianism in particular?
1: The fundamental issue i have with this cultural identitarianism is it has a view of culture and human human beings that says that human beings are made by culture rather than human beings make culture and my point is simply a a defense of cultural freedom and real cultural liberation in in the sense that that there is a a Mephistophelian aura of liberation that comes with being rootless and even with alienation and anomie or feeling unmoored to one's traditions and and heritage because um, As painful as that can be, and feeling the people's feelings of you know sorrow and longing are legitimate, but the fact of the matter is you you're not going to somehow reconnect, even though what the identity you crave after is itself an illusion that never probably never really existed, if at all. So my my argument is simply that this all these seismic processes can create a potential for new forms of culture new universal forms of culture more exciting forms of experimentation and um and and creation but that seems i think that seems To be hampered by this new cultural identitarianism, which wants to put human beings back into ethnic, you know, rigid ethnic cultural boxes with you know very firm boundaries that you're not allowed to transgress, when in actual fact a lot of cultural innovation precisely comes from this fact of transgression.
0: Yeah, I I agree although i do have a lot of sympathy with people's nostalgic uh clinging to their ethnic identities um i certainly i certainly personally have sympathy with that this wish to be sort of this fear that you're not authentically one neither authentically one thing or the other which is something that i have felt very frequently and i don't know if you have felt that too And I think it requires a certain courage to see your, uh, see the kind of modern global cultural sort of swirl as a strength, as an opportunity, not a weakness.
1: Yes. But, um, because it's this identitarianism is also connected to a sort of truncated, critique of global capitalist consumerism that that's why it has this radical edge to it which to what I think is a very very conservative idea um, and that's where you get this argument of authenticity and you know the idea that because culture becomes commodified and because of a lot of this cultural appropriation comes through, you know, uh, industries like fashion or cooking and, um, <clears throat> or film and co- because it comes through those avenues where inevitably the profit motive is at play, you know, it, it is often regarded as somehow fund of just fundamentally immoral because it's linked with commerce and that's where i think a lot of this comes from but even with commodification of culture i think there is even a dialectical progress at play because i think it's through that very process of commodification that sense of sort of extracting you know an essence out of something that you can, that the space is open for this cultural liberation, even through that, because uncommodified cultures, I think become stale, stagnate and eventually will dissipate.
0: It's It's also a sign of acceptance when something is commodified in a sense. So, um, you know recently there have been um a lot of much satirized complaints by east asian americans diaspora east Asians um yeah. who tell these stories of how when they were children they brought their packed lunches to school and the white kids would sneer at their packed lunches and say they were smelly and horrible and um and now some fancy Noodle bar has sprung up in in a swanky neighborhood of their city and is selling those same things for top dollar. And of course, um, there's a there's a nostalgia there. There's a weird kind of nostalgia that once they're saying this should not be allowed because they used to be bullied at school for their lunches, and their lunches were seen as unappetizing um and yet at the same time the fact that they are commodified is both a a sign and a means by which this kind of cuisine is being universally accepted and that would that means that if they were going to school today supposing that their stories that they were bullied are true which i i think some of the stories may be fictitious but supposing they are true What that means, what the swanky noodle bar means is that the young girl who's going to school today with her noodles in her packed lunch will not be teased for them. They've become seen as desirable. So it's, it's impossible to have one thing without the other. If something is accepted and desirable, then it will be commodified. That's just how capitalism works
1: yes and and also because you implied it there is a romanticism that goes through all this and obviously some of that romanticism is you know the you know your nostalgia for your mother's cooking and all that that sort of stuff and you know the sort of sense of emotion and attachment you feel towards it that it sort of means something to you because of that personal connection with who made it, your mother. While you know, if it's commodified by you know market forces, it there's it, you, there's this feeling that it's just vulgar. It's vulgarized. It it doesn't mean anything. It's just money for money's sake. It's there is no feeling towards it.
0: Well, I think also there's there's a a fear, um, a quite irrational fear because. All of these things are imaginary. I mean, it's really imaginary to believe that someone, your DNA, because your parents came from China, there is this Chinese noodle dishes are there with as part of your kind of spirit and essence and things. Yeah. These are yeah. fictitious. These are imaginary concepts. Yeah. And, uh, but there is this, people have this fear that their identity will be kind of, Diluted, especially if especially when they are diaspora especially diaspora kids, second and third yeah. generation diaspora kids, and especially uh, mixed race diaspora kids, I think even more so. there's this, yes, there's this kind of worry that you're both you're neither you neither just feel completely comfortable in the identifying with the majority culture. For some of the reasons that we outlined earlier, because of some of these misunderstandings of Western culture, literature, science, etc., as being something distinctively Western, quote unquote, rather than it just having burgeoned in the West earlier for historical reasons, for contingently historical reasons, and and yet um, not. Feeling that your own ethnic identity is kind of diluted and vulgarized by any old any old person being able to <laughs> being able to enjoy aspects of it, so there's a there's a kind of snobbery there, and it's a nostalgia for a a world more clearly ordered by accidents of birth, which is mm-hmm. actually which is deeply reactionary, yeah. but yeah. has I- has an emotional appeal has a kind of mythic appeal.
1: Um, Edward Said always used to say that um, he actually rather liked being an outsider because uh, it meant he wasn't tied down towards any one sort of uh, route, so to speak. And he always used to say that um, sometimes, he always used to say that everyone should experience what it's like to be quote-unquote marginal as Mm. first of all as a form of just life experience uh firstly and also that like i mentioned before that you can see things in a different way when you are quote-unquote outside than you are when you're just on the inside, and just stuck with one point of view.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a a very very common trope in literature, the defamiliarization that in order to see things clearly, you have to, uh, you have to kind of clear away the fog of familiarity, the taking for granted of things. Well, that's just the way they are, um, and there have been. Uh, In the 18th century, many essayists took on the personae of exotic foreigners, or they set things which were clearly commentaries on British life or on universal psychology in exotic lands and places. Mm -hmm. In order to be able to describe Western tradition with this more objective, Uh, or attempt uh, with an attempt at greater objectivity with a kind of anthropological eye. So I'm thinking of things like uh, Oliver Goldsmith's Chinese letters, and he writes as a Chinaman newly arrived in London who knows nothing whatsoever about British society and customs and is completely baffled by them and is therefore, of course, able to show up how oppressive and unnatural many of those customs are and how arbitrary
1: or even edward Said's favorite author joseph conrad Mm. polish guy who immigrant who adopted the customs of an english gentleman and then wrote a book about english colonialism the heart of darkness
0: so, Ralph, a couple more things that I would like to ask you about. The first thing is um, another thing that you've written about, which is the differences between racism in, Br- in Britain and racism in the U.S. And you have recently argued that the wholesale adoption of the aims and tactics of Black Lives Matter in Britain is misguided because the circumstances here are different, and therefore our approach needs to be a different one. Could you say more about that?
1: Well, it's because Britain and America are very different societies with um, very different, similar in some cases, but different relations to race and racism. They both manifest themselves relatively differently because of different national histories. Therefore, I think our the way we talk about racism in Britain has to be adjusted for this context and shouldn't take a an American lens to use to see Britain with and this is not like some silly argument about whether racism is worse in Britain or better in Britain than it is in the US. It's just different. Um, so, you know, my point, my um, argument really is, is that, you know, for the legitimate problems that do exist in Britain, like police brutality or, you um, you know structural inequality and all that stuff that we you know have to sort of look at them in their own on their own terms instead of sort of you know soaking in you know the the sloganeering that and the what i think are pretty rancid decrepit ideas of from you know the rump elements of the American academy that promote this sort of very americanized identitarianism um that is not is starting to spread all over the world you know <laughs> not just in britain
0: one issue that i think maybe you might have a, a thoughts on is I've become very allergic to this term, the white working class, because I feel that it is, I, I don't like this racialization of poverty or of economic deprivation. Agree. And I think it's divisive to, uh, it's divisive and therefore hampers a, um, a fight for better um, measures to alleviate poverty, to safeguard the welfare state and other things which are dear to my heart. And I also think it it seems to oddly suggest a kind of a, a strict cultural divide between um, white uh, uh, working class white people and working class, non-white people and that seems very um, that, that doesn't seem to feel to me to hold very true how do you feel about that?
1: Class is a relationship not an identity um, it's a relationship to the means of the economy and production um, so anybody there's, there's no, like, racial barrier to being working class or gender bar- barrier. Um, so all this talk about white working class is just, I, I just find it a little bit ridiculous. Um, but, and yeah, it is, I think, a form of identitarianism. And it, and it very often has bear this image of the working class man it's usually a man that's often brought up a white man who's like the most sort of vulgar, racist, sexist, you know, homophobic, um, you know, unrefined and pretty stupid man. Who's, who's often sort of And There are two people sort of invoke this, like one is sort of like kind of elitist liberal types who's, use it, it sort of do this sneering in a pseudo anti, you know, progressive way, or, or like sort of certain sections of the far right, because that's the sort of idea, you know, ideology they believe in. And they want a certain sense of credibility that they are sort of punching up against the liberal establishment that's stopping them expressing their bigoted views so mm. that's that's the work the so called white working class
0: yeah it's like on the on the one hand a demonization um in certain circles and then on the other hand this kind of um glorification. it's the the white working class is the authentic voice of the people, and yeah. they're both very patronizing and one-sided depictions.
1: Yes, and and the, the the biggest problem with it is that it defines the working class as a culture, not as a sort of materialist relation. And when you ask it what what is a working class culture, you know, then you get into sort of the weeds of that. Um, and and it also sort of sort of talks about class in this very simplistic almost sees it as a kind of caste sort of way where yes. like yeah where, where's like a sort of rigid sort of social group that is very firm and definable and um rooted whereas the class as a relation is much more Dynamic and it's doesn't it sort of has no it has no um, uh, um, relation to culture in this in this narrow way.
0: Yeah. Once again, it's this attempt that people have to place themselves and others into these kinds of boxes, um, into mm-hmm. this sort of uh, it's using working class as a pseudo ethnic classification. These are your people, quote unquote. Um, in the same way as people talk about black culture or that it's this desire to make identity destiny and to see things as to, to, um, Depict or long for things to be fixed, whereas that simply isn't the way that modern life works anymore. It neither works that way genetically. I mean, not that there's any such thing as racial purity, quote unquote, but nevertheless, it doesn't, it never makes sense to me to think about a white versus a black working class when I know that half of all black men and a third of black women in britain are in relationships with non-black people and yeah. that that is a lot of mixed race kids blended families etc there's no there's no kind of clear distinction and i also think that far less than in the states we don't have the same kind of ghettoization racial ghettoization in London just because London is so gentrified. Yeah. So here where I live in the East End, it's completely uh mixed, racially mixed. It's, you know, our neighbors on both sides are um, well, on one side is a family who are all quote-unquote black. Um, and on the other side is a quote unquote, "black lady and her, and her white husband and their kids. Um, and when I'm out in the park, there are lots of girls are in hijab. Um, there's just yeah. to think of this as some kind of white working- class area is just seems or, or as a black area or as a Muslim area just seems so so divorced from. The reality on the ground which is it's a patchwork and people are Mm. interlinked in a million ways so ralph is there anything that you have that you wish that i had asked you or that you would like to um talk about that we haven't covered
1: thing is uh, i would have i have to sort of kind of go now but
0: oh yeah sure
1: i would have liked to talk about the you're going to ask me about the libertine thing
0: Oh, yes. Do you want to maybe briefly end on that?
1: No, I'll probably have to <laughs> save that for next
0: time. Okay. Well, um, let's talk about that next time. And thank you so much, Ralph.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Ralph.
0: Thank you. It was.
1: Oh. It's an honor to speak with you.
0: Oh, no, the honor is all mine. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.